Welcome again to another Conservative Historian podcast. This one entitled, Walter Williams, A Different Way. The date is December 2020, and I'm Bell If a random pollster went out and asked Americans, circa 2020, whether they could name Michael Brown of Ferguson, Jacob Blake of Kenosha, and of course, George Floyd, the response would be uniformly high. All of them were African-American males shot or killed in very unfortunate encounters with police officers. Each has been the recipient of multiple memorials presided over by famous speakers. In Brown's case, his death inspired the Black Lives Matter movement, arguably the farthest left civil rights movement since the Black Panthers of the 1960s. Floyd's death led to mass protests and subsequent riots and lootings in major U.S. cities throughout the nation. There are murals and even t-shirts. They are all famous. They are all also criminals whose circumstances in their encounters were not random. Now, if you ask the same group of Americans whether they had heard of Walter E. Williams, you would get several differentiated answers, and almost all of them incorrect. Some would guess he is a pro athlete. Others might conjecture he was that guy from Breaking Bad. And a small subset might have read his column or heard of him on conservative radio programs. Now, the correct answer would be that Walter Williams was one of the greatest economists of the past 50 years. His writings on poverty, especially those on race, were meticulously researched and provided an alternative view to the current dogma about race and poverty in America today. Economic Policy Journal includes his writings with this following quote, He was the author of over 150 publications which have appeared in scholarly journals such as the Economic Inquiry, American Economic Review, Georgia Law Review, Journal of Labor Economics, Social Science Quarterly, and Cornell Journal of Law and Public Policy. He was also a contributor to popular publications such as Newsweek, Ideas on Liberty, National Review, Reader's Digest, Cato's Journal, and Policy Review. In addition to all of this, and his teaching, he authored 10 books. Here's the list. America, a Minority Viewpoint, The State Against Blacks, which was later made into a PBS documentary called Good Intentions. He also wrote All It Takes Is Guts, South Africa's War Against Capitalism, which was later revised for South African publication. He wrote Do the Right Thing, The People's Economists Speak, More Liberty Means Less Government, Liberty versus the Tyranny of Socialism, his autobiography, Up from the Projects. He also wrote Race and Economics, How Much Can Be Blamed in Discrimination, and finally, American Contempt for Liberty. The ruling narrative, dictated by the left, is that the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and what the left believes to be current systemic racism is the dominant factor in the lives of African Americans today. And therefore, these factors can only be solved by reparations and a massive reordering of political, economic, and social systems. By the continuous acknowledgement on the part of whites, the problem lies with them. In this narrative, African Americans are mainly victims, powerless before the might of systemic racism overseen by their white oppressors. Now, Williams who passed away on December 2nd, had a very different view. Let's just take one example, and that of black unemployment. Through his detailed research methodology and his ability 
found that the reality of black employment to be partly attributed to government interventions, not just based on racism. In the late 1970s, Williams published his works on how unionization hurt black economics. Quote, according to veteran Galloway, before enacting the Davis-Bacon Act, black and white construction unemployment registered at similar levels. After the enactment of the Davis-Bacon Act, however, black unemployment rose relative to that of whites. Better and Galloway also argue that 1930 to 1950 was a period of unprecedented and rapidly increasing government intervention in the economy. The period saw enactment of the bulk of legislation restraining the setting of private wage, such as the Fair Labor Standard Acts, Davis-Bacon Act, Walsh-Healy Act, and National Labor Relations Act. The Social Security Act also played a role, forcing employers to pay for a newly imposed fringe benefit. Veteran Galloway also note that this period saw a rapid increase in the black-white unemployment ratio. So what Williams is primarily arguing here, and one of his first, was is that government intervention, the very thing that movements such as Black Lives Matter yearn for, was actually detrimental to black economics. Now, writing in the Wall Street Journal, Jason Riley notes of Williams' research, quote, one of Congress's goals at the time was to stop black laborers from displacing whites by working for less money. Missouri Representative John Cochran said that he had, quote, received numerous complaints in recent months about Southern contractors employing low-paid colored mechanics. In Alabama, Representative Clayton Allgood fretted about contractors with cheap colored labor of the sort that is in competition with white labor throughout the country, unquote. In addition to the faulty government intervention in terms of labor, Williams also noted that the minimum wage, one of those massive economic calamities that never seems to lose purchase with certain people, is discriminatory to African Americans. Quote, the real problem is that workers are not so much underpaid as they are underskilled. And the real task is, is to help those people become skilled. Congress cannot do this by simply declaring that as of such and such a date, this, everybody, this is everybody's productivity per hour. This makes about as much sense as, and does as much damage as doctors curing patients simply by declaring that they are cured, unquote. In addition to his views on race, Williams and Thomas Sowell were a full-throated defender of capitalism. Where Williams differed from, say, Milton Friedman was to link the legacy of slavery and its end throughout much of the world to capitalism. Quote, prior to capitalism, the way people amassed great wealth was by looting, plundering, and enslaving their fellow man. Capitalism made it possible to become wealthy by serving your fellow man. Unquote. In 1700, at the dawn of capitalism, when most societies were agricultural, slavery was endemic. It was capitalism that helped the, end the heinous, this heinous practice for the first time in history. Now, in opposition to this view, held by Williams and myself, Nicole Hannah-Jones, in her poorly researched and fantastical 1619 project, including included an essay by sociology professor Matthew Desmond that attempted to link slavery to capitalism to denigrate this economic system. 
As Williams noted, the exact opposite is the reality. And Williams went on to write, quote, No matter how worthy the cause, it is robbery, theft, and injustice to confiscate the property of one person and give it to another to whom it does not belong, unquote. In his Contempt for Liberty, Williams went much further in his denunciation of redistributed measures favored by the left. I will quote this at length because each word is pertinent. Quote, the recognition of the fact that Congress has no resources of its own forces us to acknowledge that the only way Congress can give one American dollar is to first, through intimidation, threats, and coercion, confiscate that dollar from some other American. If a private citizen did the same thing that Congress does, we would call it an immoral act, namely theft. Acts such as theft that are immoral when done privately do not become moral when done collectively. The moral tragedy that has befallen Americans is our belief that it is okay for government to forcibly use one American to serve the purposes of the other, unquote. But unlike so many other pundits who abrogate their belief system to get a, a column in a newspaper, to get on Fox News or CNN, Williams was free of the bane of politicians and many political commentators, hypocrisy. Here's Williams attacking the Republican position on giving aid to farmers. Quote, there are many farm handouts, but let's call them what they are, a form of legalized theft. Essentially, a congressman tells his farm constituency, vote for me. I'll use my office to take another American's money and give it to you, unquote. It is no more right to tax a city dweller, an urbanite, to subsidize ethanol than to use that farmer's taxes to finance, I don't know, Princeton student loans. It was not just the brilliance of William's writing, the nature of research, but it was the consistency of his conservatism. I began this podcast by mentioning a number of the names of those who had those unfortunate run-ins with police officers. All of them had some sort of struggles in their lives. But in this regard, Williams, at least at the beginning, was not that much different. They all struggled in their lives, and so did Williams. Therefore, Williams was the real role model. Veronique de Rugui, writing about him in National Review, included a slate of writers offering tributes. Here's from Donald Boudreau. Quote, a one-time cab driver who grew up poor in Philadelphia, Walter knew injustice and understood the way to fight it wasn't by emoting, but by probing and learning, unquote. Pete Boatke, quote, Walter did not seek confrontation for the sake of confrontation, nor did he run away from it. He saw truth in the human condition, aided by the rigorous logic of economic reasoning and the scientific methods discipline, unquote. The left always says, especially when it comes to climate change, and more recently, in response to the COVID-19 virus, follow the science. Well, that is exactly what Williams did. And this final quote from one of my favorites, Thomas Sowell, quote, he was my best friend for half a century. There was no one, no one I trusted more or whose integrity I respected more, unquote. Sowell once quipped that he and Williams should never be on the same plane. 
At one point, they were the only two prominent African-American economists who were also conservatives. As Sol joked, if the plane went down, the entire school would be wiped out. Williams knew what it was like to be raised in Philadelphia's projects. He knew real poverty. His belief system was not born out of avoidance of discrimination and poverty. Instead, it was his personal ability to escape it that shaped his narratives. In his, in his autobiography, Up From the Projects, William writes, quote, Sometimes I sarcastically, perhaps cynically, say that I'm glad that I received virtually all of my education before it became fashionable for white people to like black people, unquote. Williams, showing some of the humor so prevalent in Soul's commentary, echoes a theme held by many conservative African-Americans. It is the very interventions that cause harm rather than help. Quote, by that, I mean that I encountered back then a more honest assessment of my strengths and weaknesses. Professors didn't hesitate to criticize me, sometimes to the point of saying, that's nonsense, adds Williams. In his autobiography, Williams goes on to note, quote, we lived in the Richard Allen housing projects. My father deserted us when I was three, and my sister was two, but we were the only kids who didn't have a mother and father in the house. These were poor black people and a few whites living in a housing project, and it was unusual not to have a mother and a father in the house. Today, it would be rare in the same projects to have a mother and a father in the same house. And again, linking the situation of blacks today with government intervention, Williams is unsparing in his critique. During Reconstruction and up until the 1940s, 75% to 85% of black children lived in two-parent families. Today, more than 70% of black children are born to single women. Quote, the welfare state has done to black Americans what slavery couldn't do, what Jim Crow couldn't do, what the harshest racism couldn't do, unquote. So where do we stand concerning Williams' worldview today? Quote, racial discrimination is not the problem of black people that it used to be, at least not in his youth. Today, I doubt you could find any significant problem that blacks face that is caused by racial discrimination. The 70% illegitimacy rate is a devastating problem, but it doesn't have a damn thing to do with racism. The fact that in some areas, black people are huddled in their homes at night, sometimes serving meals on the floor so they don't get hit by a stray bullet. That's not because the Klan is riding through the neighborhood. You find more and more black people, not enough in my opinion, but more and more questioning the status quo. When I fill in for Rush, Williams was a guest host on the Rush Limbo radio program, I get emails from blacks who say they agree with what I'm saying. And there are a lot of white people questioning ideas on race too. There's less white guilt out there and it's progress, unquote. On the state of the nation, economically, Williams was not quite so sanguine. Quote, in 1719-4, Congress appropriated $15,000 to help some French refugees. In objection, James Madison stood on the House floor and said he could not take to lay his finger on that article in the Constitution that allows Congress to take the money of its constituents for benevolence. Well, if you look at the federal budget today, two-thirds to three-quarters of it is for benevolence, unquote. 
Now, an argument could be made that the taxation that was more prevalent during Madison's era and throughout the 19th century was beneficial to both. So let's say that you take a tax from Peter to build a bridge in Paul's district. Now, Peter's not in the district, so he doesn't get to use that. But because the bridge leads to commerce and to general trade activity, both profit from that. That is not the system we have today. The system we have today is is that Paul is a worker or Paul is an unborn member of the future generation. And we take money from him to pay for Peter's retirement. And keep in mind, when Social Security was enacted in uh, the 1930s, the average lifespan of a male was around 67. Now, it's over 14 years beyond that. It is interesting that Williams, talking about the coercive nature of government confiscation, was talking purely about benevolence. What I'm here talking about is the constant takings of money from people today and from vast future generations to pay for the long retirement. And none of that, not by either party, is getting addressed. And unfortunately, we no longer have William's voice to add support for this simple economic reality. When Walter Williams began his work in the 1970s on the destructive nature of unionization for African-Americans, he and Seoul were both, well, pretty much two of a kind, but also pretty much the only kind. Later, Shelby Steele rose to prominence, and Clarence Thomas was seated on the Supreme Court, and then secessionist South Carolina sent Tim Scott to the Senate. Most recently, Burgess Owens was elected from Utah, you know, Utah, that hotbed of African-American activity, to the House of Representatives. Candace Owens is now a fixture of social media activity, and the aforementioned Jason Riley has his own column in the Wall Street Journal. For 67 years, from 1865 to 1932, African Americans were predominantly residents within the Republican Party. Now, this was albeit a more state-oriented, free-spending version of the Republican Party than today, but we're still members of that party. The Republicans were already dominant in this period, but if it were not for the covert and overt voter suppression practiced by whites against blacks in the South, it would have been even more powerful. The sea change, and much else, occurred in 1932 amid the Great Depression. Blacks abandoned the Republicans. This significant shift was later cemented in 1964 when Democrat Lyndon B. Johnson began his Great Society programs to assist with black poverty. And with the election of Barack Obama, his election achieved a nearly 90% rate of African-American support for Obama, obviously a Democratic candidate. There are now two stark choices, and this will be very interesting and where the wave of African-Americans will go. The first is a Black Lives Matter narrative of the left that will entail more government intervention and a nation's fundamental reordering, or that favored by Williams. That narrative is that blacks will embrace liberty, capitalism, and personal freedom and reject the narrative of the left. Will African Americans look back upon the last 60 years of governmental help and assistance, which has led to significant wealth gaps and this summer riots? Or will they try for the first time in American history the vision of Williams, the one that that propelled Williams to the highest level of academia, to the highest levels of media? And one final quote from Williams. 
Today, at least, we know that there are lots of other blacks writing and saying similar things, and many of them are sufficiently younger that we know there will be good people carrying on the fight after we are gone. Unquote. From these words come the virtue of optimism. Unfortunately, we will no longer have Walter Williams in the fight, and he will be sorely, sorely missed. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening to another Conservative Historian podcast. We have additional podcasts available at www.conservativehistorian.com, along with essays, book reviews, and videos. Check them out. Thank you for listening.